Because of my success in the private sector, I had the chance to run America's largest city for 12 years. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. And that's just, that's just not true. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. Hello, welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. I'm Sean P. McCarthy here. I'm joined, as always, by my friends. Yogi Polywolf. Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. And uh, this week, we are taking a look at Silvio Berlusconi. Let me tell you, I am the best prime minister Italy has ever had. For some reason, people compare this guy to Donald Trump. <laughs> that music and in the background sounds like Drake's. <laughs> Uh, well, he also observes the same age of consent that Drake does. <laughs> oh, this uh, guy texts Millie Bobby Brown every day? Yeah. So uh, Silvio Berlusconi is a, is a billionaire. According to Forbes, he's as of this moment worth about $6.6 billion U.S. dollars. Uh, he's Italy's longest serving prime minister uh, since World War II. He's the longest serving guy in power in Italy since the guy with the first name Benito. <laughs> um, what did that guy do? Yeah. <laughs> He must have been really good. <laughs> Seems he, like long-term prime ministers are really good in Italy. They also both do bunga bunga parties. That <laughs> <laughs> seems to be the key to maintaining power <laughs> in Italian government. But so Silvio Berlusconi, is, he was the prime minister of Italy uh, for uh, several months in 1994. Then he was in power from 2001 to 2006. Then he was in power from 2008 to 2011. And then he was brought down by Bunga Bunga. But he's still a political force in Italy. Um, and he's actually just a few days ago, before we started recording this, he announced he's going to run for the European Parliament in Italy. And this is, he's just kind of trying to leverage, he, he's not necessarily able to return to the prime ministership, but he's trying to leverage his power to protect his business interests and all that. Well, he wasn't really brought down by Bunga Bunga, was he? It was, he, they got him on an Al Capone thing. He eventually, of, uh, yes, tax evasion. they got him on taxes, but his government was uh, deposed um, beca in the aftermath of Bunga Bunga after uh. some, some European wide scheming that involved his president and all this stuff. But now, now for the audience, Bunga yes. Bunga is the uh, mask from Crash Bandicoot. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can give you an explanation of Bunga Bunga in Berlusconi's own words. Yeah, sure. Okay. This is from uh, the Netflix doc, my way, uh, which uh, I guess it's named after uh Frank Sinatra song, which if you ask me a little too whoppish, um, Okay. Ber Berlusconi is actually the, the less fascist between the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here is uh, Berlusconi's explanation. I'll be reading the, uh, the subtitles. Bunga Bunga is a story which comes from a real event. Gaddafi, Gaddafi always wanted me to come to the ceremony of the a, King of Kings. He's good friends with Gaddafi. One year, I couldn't go because I had a very important commitment. So he said to me, send me two of your guys. So I chose two delegates and I sent them to him. And here's where the story begins. These guys are taken by the only revolutionary tribe there is. They're taken to this village, tied to a stake, and the people start doing a tribal dance around them with guttural shouting 
And the only word they could understand was bunga 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 bunga. Bunga 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 bunga. <laughs> Then the dance finishes. And the witch doctor goes over to Susito, one of the two, and he says, You die or bunga bunga? Like anyone would have done between dying and bunga bunga, he says bunga bunga. And all the warriors at the village screw him. <laughs> <laughs> Then the witch doctor goes up to the other one, to Bodhi, and he says to him, You, die or bunga bunga? And Bodhi, having seen what has happened to Sakito, says, Die. Ah, fine, you can die, but first a bit of bunga bunga. <laughs> that, that, of course, resulted in a famous diplomatic incident where an, an Italian deputy minister was fucked to death in Libya. <laughs> And and that is why uh, Berlusconi, and this is true, was the biggest opponent in Europe of uh, military intervention to depose Gaddafi because he knew what would happen if the revolutionaries took over Libya. <laughs> It's um, but yeah, so Berlusconi like Bunga Bunga is one of Italy's main exports. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people observe he's like uh, Berlusconi. He talks. He tells a lot of street jokes. You know, whenever he gets the mic at something, he, he talks. Yeah, <laughs> like so. I was the the other joke from this book, uh, being Berlusconi, um, is apparently Berlusconi would tell the joke that when Italian women are polled, uh, would they have sex with Berlusconi? Thirty uh, percent of them say yes, and then the other seventy percent say what again? <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, he's, uh, and, and, and again, the, the Donald Trump comparison is, is the, the, the primary thing we, we want to start with here because, you know, in addition to like, let's say weaponizing resentment against political correctness and, you know, the backlash and that kind of stuff, Berlusconi also constantly lies, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, what's funny about this story is like, clearly there's a real story behind like Bunga Bunga, um, but he tells this He, he says it's a true story. He keeps a straight face through the whole thing, which, you know, is a good way to tell a joke. But it's like he's very clearly just like using the joke as uh, kind of a misdirect sure. from the real story. Right. And like you can see where he departs from reality, but he like gives no indication other than like laughing at the end of it mm. that it's just complete, like <laughs> completely made up. Like it, 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 he just he's able to just make stuff up with a straight face. Right. It's like when people run bits while they're talking to you and you're like, I mean, I, you probably workshop that a couple of times. Yeah. But yeah. The other stuff's not that good. Yeah. He was a cruise singer, too, oh, like really? in his 20s. So this is yeah. like if a cruise comic took power. Well, Trump is like a, <laughs> Trump came to power because he was basically the road comic president uh -huh. who would just workshop policy in front of a crowd and see what like the hooting idiots would hoot the most for. And that <laughs> shaped his like his campaign uh, speech. But like, yeah. So Berlusconi is basically he's he, he's as I see him, he's Trump without the um, uh, clear dementia. Uh -huh. Like he's 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 aware of his It, it, what he is um but he's still completely fucked up sure mm. it is interesting how yes and in the case of donald trump was definitely responsible for creating an ethnic <laughs> cleansing <laughs> <laughs> you know these rules can be abused <laughs> but um so w one other quote from this this being berlusconi book uh, in 2006 explaining why italians ought to re-elect him after five years of crass and inept leadership prime minister berlusconi said quote I am the Jesus Christ of politics. I <laughs> sacrifice myself for everyone. <laughs> and it's, um, 
It's it's another it's another thing where uh, Berlusconi, you know, when he got into politics in 1994, he was already a billionaire, and it it was the same kind of refrain that you heard with both Donald Trump and Michael Bloomberg, which was, "Oh, these guys are billionaires, so they'll be honest in office because right. they don't need any money." Yeah. Whereas other politicians are corruptible, <laughs> and it's funny and how just like just like. Uh, Michael Bloomberg and Donald Trump, he proved it. Yes. That's right. That billionaires are very honest in office and not completely corrupt. No, God, no. Why would they be? It's I mean, like these people who are already hoarders for money, uh, <laughs> for some reason, do not cease that deep psychological <laughs> sickness when they assume political office. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, and... The thing about Berlusconi's corruption is this podcast be about an hour. We don't have time to get to all of this. <laughs> Berlusconi has been on over 60 trials for corruption, bribery, association with the mafia, underage prostitution. Um, and uh, wow, they, who's his lawyer? Johnny Cochran? <laughs> so basically his political career was launched in order to keep himself out of prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. He said this to the editor of one of his newspapers that, to be honest, I, I ran for the office because if I didn't, I would end up in prison and then in debt. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and we'll kind of go through the mechanism of how they um, how they manipulated the law once they were actually in power in order to protect, protect himself and protect his business empire. Um, his holding company is called Fininvest. It's a holding company for his media and real estate empire. He originally got rich through real estate. Uh, yeah, we should, uh, let's start from from the beginning. He was uh, he he came from relatively humble uh, beginnings. That's uh, that's another departure from Trump is that he has he at least knows uh, right from wrong. Well, not necessarily that, <laughs> but uh, he knows uh, what it is like to want or to um, to to not be yeah. incredibly rich. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so Berlusco- Silvio Berlusconi is born in 1936 in Milan. Um, at the age of six, he's evacuated with his family to the countryside because, of course, in World War II, the Allies are carpet bombing <laughs> Milan. Um, oh, and but- by the way, fun fun little tidbit from the, from the documentary is that mm-hmm. um, he's he's walking um, the interviewer and host of the documentary around his house, and one thing he shows him is. Uh, he, he we'll, we'll talk about later how he worked his way into TV, but he points to uh, TV and he says, uh, this is a gift from me from Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> it's a TV from 1936, the year I was born. And like, I'm sure someone around Queen Elizabeth II uh, kind of worked that out. But sure, I'm sure, sure to her, she was like, 1936, when... Oh, I remember TV in 1936. I saw a lot of Italian leaders <laughs> in 1936 on TV when she was like 10. Um, but yes, and, and you know, like, look, there's say what you will about uh, uh, terror bombing civilian populations, <laughs> but can you imagine how many pedophiles there would be in Italy had the Allies oh not God. done it? <laughs> I guess we should say. Uh, Every time you do ironic racism against Italians on this episode, you have to put a dollar into the <laughs> ito- uh, ironic racism against Italians <laughs> jar. Oh, it's ironic. <laughs> and we'll we'll use it to, to fund. <laughs> we'll use it to fund an organization that prosecutes Italians. <laughs> the the anti mafia group. Um, Con Edison. Sorry. Yeah. Let's continue. The mob so, is in utilities in New York. Well, somebody just got their meter reading changed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so Berlusconi, again, so he's evacuated the countryside, relatively poor family. His father uh, does fight for the Italian army in World War II. Thank you for your service. Um, <laughs> but uh, so basically... His and fa- he survived, which means he was one of the smart Italians who just immediately surrendered to the Allies. <laughs> uh, so his you guys f- sound like like nineteenth century racists <laughs> from from the U.S. That's what living in New York does to you. Like I think so. You're like, well, these are the smart Italians. <laughs> no, I mean that was just the case. Like, if you were fighting for Italy in World War II, like you were dumb if you actually fought. Mm-hmm. Like. It, Italians were known to uh, surrender very quickly because they all knew that Mussolini was a dipshit. Mm-hmm. So they were just like, you know what? My wi- life will improve vastly if I just like put my hands up. The Americans uh, don't do as many war crimes as uh, the other people. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Tell that to Rocky. <laughs> but so... Um... I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I'm very tired. I apologize. <laughs> Oh, but, yeah. Yogi just got engaged. Oh, yeah. Congratulations, Yogi. Well, let's move on. Mazel tov. This podcast is not about unions. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Silvio Berlusconi's dad comes back from the war. Um, his parents sent him to, like, a strict Catholic boarding school. Apparently there, um, according to the book Being Berlusconi, that might be where Silvio Berlusconi learned kind of his lifelong anti-communist rhetoric. Nice. He went to this, you know, strict uh, Catholic boarding uh, boarding school uh, apparently there he would do homework for other classmates for money you know so this oh, is like clever. early businessman operations <laughs> oh and also uh, apparently he said that um he told the interviewer he was so charismatic that people in his family said you could be a cardinal and then when he told the interviewer this they both laughed and i assume it's because of all the uh, rape charges against <laughs> berlusconi <laughs> um but he's, he's, He's come a long way since running a Kumon <laughs> in the countryside. So uh, his father was was named Luigi, and it will cost you a, <laughs> cost you a dollar if you want to say anything about that. Um, but his father his father came back from the war, and he got a job with a bank. And um, his father's bank was he, was he running it with his his brother Waluigi? <laughs> <laughs> now, there was. <laughs> I'm sorry, his cousin. There was a famous incident where Koopas did a run on the bank. <laughs> <laughs> like hundreds of them trying to withdraw their money all at once. <laughs> and he had to shoot fireballs at them <laughs> to keep them out. Uh, <clears throat> his father's bank uh, was interesting in that uh, his father's bank was called Banca Rosini. His father works at this bank. And Banca Rosini was uh, founded by a banker who uh, was heavily connected to the Sicilian Mafia. (laughs) Wow. So um, basically, according to a prosecutor, uh, Banca Rosini, where uh, Berlusconi's father worked, was, quote, the Mafia's treasure chest in Milan. Berlusconi Um, flatly denies that any Mafia money helped him to get a start in real estate. uh, So Banca Rosini, this is from the book Being Berlusconi, was founded by uh, Michele... uh, Michael Sindona, (laughs) I do it every episode, Uh, who is a banker with connections to Sicilian mafia prosecutors. Uh, Prosecutor suspects mafia, the mafia invested in Milan through Berlusconi, basically. And we'll get to that in one second. But Sean. Yes. Sean. Yes. Sean. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. There's no such thing as a mafia. (laughs) 
<laughs> the um the the point that I was making here is like the question of where Berlusconi got his startup capital because we mentioned he was born relatively lower middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes from this thing of ours. Berlusconi Though, flatly denies <laughs> that any mafia money helped him to get a start in real estate. Yes. <laughs> But uh, we are jumping ahead just really quickly. What Berlusconi was doing before is uh, he actually, he, he graduates. He, he, in his 20s, he works as a singer on uh, cruise ships in the Mediterranean. He briefly works at a Paris cabaret. And actually, you know, maybe we'll put it in at the end of the episode. Berlusconi does have a good singing voice. Oh. So he will regularly regale people at political events with his, like, singing, you know. So regular so, Lady Gaga? Right. Well, so And his, his origin story from the Paris cabaret is mm-hmm. such like a just like weird daddy issues thing where his his dad finally came to see him perform at the paris cabaret and uh he performed and you know he was like i've got to do great for my father and then he's in his dressing room backstage and his father comes in uh crosses his arms and says do you want to sing for the rest of your life <laughs> and <laughs> Silvio immediately like packs his stuff and goes back to Milan <laughs> to like live with his dad and work in real estate. That's but, how mafia works. But father, where else will I find underage women? <laughs> Son, let me tell you about politics. <laughs> Uh, so Berlusconi, yes, like that's the story he tells in the documentary is his father sees him at the Paris Cabaret and then he abandons his original dream of being a singer. He goes to the uh, University of Milan. He graduates law in 1961 with top honors. According to the book Being Berlusconi, his thesis on con- tr- on the contractual aspects of advertising of <laughs> <laughs> even won an award from a local advertising agency. But so he graduates law in 1961, and then at this time, you know, it's post-war, there's an economic boom in Milan, so he gets into real estate at the age of 25. Berlusconi flatly denied <laughs> any mafia money helped him to get a start in real estate. Um, so from the book Being Berlusconi, his first, um, his first real estate deal, again, he's 25 years old, he manages to convince the head of his father's bank, which has no mafia ties, to guarantee the loan needed to build his first apartments in Milan, his famous powers of persuasion were in evidence when he sold the first of these properties to one of his lifelong friends' uh, grandmother. Hmm. And um, oh, and his story for selling that it might be, uh, it might be true, or it might be a gag he saw from uh, the film adaptation of Mikhail's Navy, where he's he says he's painting the uh, outside of this shack or whatever he's selling, and a wealthy family comes and says, "Oh." Uh, we're looking for a place for our daughter. Is this for sale? And he doesn't want them to think that he's the administrator who's painting it. So he says, oh, yes. Uh, one moment. I'll go get the boss. Oh, wow. And he goes into the building, puts on a suit, <laughs> or in his words, a tie, mm-hmm. um, comes back out and says, uh, yes, uh, I'll, I'm here to show you around. <laughs> and then he says they said that, um, oh, you look just like the other guy. And he goes, Oh yes, uh, that that was my cousin who is uh, uh, kind of slow-witted. <laughs> um, but so basically, this is his like first uh, apartment deal um, at the age of twenty-five. But then he he strikes out on like a much more ambitious thing that apparently like not even the the head of his bank could afford to lend him the money for. So again. 
There have been heavy accusations about mafia involvement. Berlusconi <laughs> any mafia money helped him to get a start in real estate. What a, what a speaking voice. I know. It's very beautiful. Guy, yeah. But so uh, the next thing he does after this first one is um, it, it's a complex for several thousand people. He starts setting up these gated communities. He does like three of them, I believe. Uh, the first one's Milano uh, 1. And this is a like a complex just outside Milan for like several thousand people. Um, and uh, basically, you know, you're setting up gated communities uh, for Italians. And, and just quoting from the book, Being Berlusconi, additional funds flowed in to um, uh, this company that Berlusconi founded to base the venture. Uh, they flowed in from a Swiss company. This firm's real proprietors have never been identified. What? And it was at this point that whispers began, rumors concerning the origins of Berlusconi's investments. When large, opaque cash flows are involved in Italy, the, mer- the word mafia inevitably surfaces. Berlusconi flatly <laughs> denies that any mafia money helps him to get a start in yeah. real estate. But so this is in the mid-60s. This is his first gated community. Within five years, he had Basically fa- invented Stuyvesant Town. <laughs> Within five years, he had found owners for a thousand new homes. No sentence and worse than this was his first gated community. <laughs> his, his, he becomes a multimillionaire in the 70s. This is his second gated community. Um, is called Milano 2. This is a gated community for 10,000 people. Wait, I thought his first one was Milan 2, and then the second one was Milan 3. Well, that wouldn't make any sense. Does he want people to think he has more gated communities than he actually does? (laughs) Yeah, but you can't say Milan 1 because there's already a Milan. I mean, there's the city of Milan. Milano 1? Yeah, and so he named his first one Milano 2. And then I assume the third one, Milano 3. Or he just had two. This right here, this is Milan 30. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe I'm wrong about the name, but basically he does have kind of a shittier gated community before Milano 2. And so oh. the big irony here, and I can kind of skip ahead to it. So he sells this first gated community. He convinces the people to move out there. But then Milano, too, is like much more fancy, much more luxury. But he's having trouble selling it because mm-hmm. aircraft flight routes go right over it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he bribes the Italian uh, parliamentarians in order to change aircraft flight wow. routes and ends up putting them over his first gated community. <laughs> <laughs> what a fucking snake. <laughs> Um, but so Milano 2 is, is what makes him a, a multimillionaire. This is in the early 70s. Uh, Milano 2, it's um, a gated community for about 10,000 people. It has its own shops, a schools, um, a church, a cinema, central plaza, artificial lake. Sounds nice. Um, and also it's important in the 70s. Uh, Italy is like beset by terrorism, mafia kidnappings, you know, the Red Guards in Italy. Um or is it Red Brigades? I don't remember. But but there's both like uh, fascist and communists are kidnapping people, murdering politicians. The mafia is kidnapping wealthy people and holding them ransom. So a lot of people who like have a bit of disposable income want to get out of the city and like live in such a gated community. So right. this is an opportune time for him. Also in the 70s, it was very important to have um, uh, living arrangements that were very uh, accommodating to key parties. Uh, lots of uh, glass bowls. <laughs> Wait, so in theory, this guy made money or got money from the mob to yes. make gated communities, and then the mob made the regular communities too Berlusconi unsafe. Flatly okay. <laughs> <laughs> money helped him to get a start. But then the mob made it so that the regular communities were too dangerous because of them, and so they moved to his communities? It was an interesting little... Um, Allegedly. Yes. Allegedly, sure. <laughs> You scratch uh, my back, I scratch yours yeah. kind of situation. Yeah. 
Um, huh. But but so, again, from the book Being Berlusconi, um, Bank of Italy inspectors tried to look into where the money for Milano 2 came from. Um, they were intrigued by the tsunami of cash flowing into it. Uh, they discovered... Uh, labyrinth account arranged labyrinthine account arrangements and various companies within companies that resembled a series of rushing nesting dolls the economist noted that berlusconi's name was quote nowhere to be seen in the company <laughs> filings of the main developer or in the filings of the company group overseeing the commercial part of it so it was just like all these kind of like offshore accounts where you have no idea what um what's going on but so uh, uh just to kind of like give you a bit more context on the mafia thing. So in 1974 and 75, he hires a guy named Vittorio uh, Mangano. There's no such thing as a mafia. <laughs> in 1974 and 75, uh, uh, Berlusconi uh, hires this guy who's a convicted mafia hitman and drug dealer in the 70s. Uh, Berlusconi hires him as an estate manager, basically, you know, to manage uh, his his mansion. But people suspect it's like, Partly mafia protection money, partly to like protect him from kidnapping. Mm -hmm. But uh, prosecutors believe this guy, uh, Vittorio Mangano, was a primary link between mafia and businessmen connected to the mafia. Mm. And basically he was doing throughout the 70s large scale heroin shipments. And then he was laundering the money, the cash through the Milan financial community. And so basically what's alleged by uh, by prosecutors Uh, And then this is from the book being Berlusconi is that in 1974 there was a meeting between Berlusconi uh, several uh, Cosa uh, Cosa Nostra associate and uh, the high-ranking boss Stefano uh, Bontati um, (laughs) Which was an account or this was organized by one of Stefano (laughs) Rigatoni One of Berlusconi's like lifelong friends and businessmen was also like connected to the mob and like set up this meeting um, and according to the being Berlusconi, at this meeting, uh, a deal was struck. Berlusconi received protection from other mafia clans, plus backing for his construction business. This is 1974, and protection of broadcasting plans in Sicily in return for large amounts of cash. But in addition, it seems likely that Cosa Nostra benefited by having somewhere to launder its dirty money while reaping its returns as a secret shareholder. Uh, one- Berlusconi flatly denies that any mafia money helped him to get a start in real estate. Uh, again, from the book, one mafia informer said that in ni- that from 1978 onwards, Berlusconi's Fininvest holding group paid some uh, 130,000 U.S. dollars a year in protection money to keep its TV transmitters in Sicily operational. Another high-profile informant claimed that Berlusconi poured as much as uh, 600 million lira, about 400,000 U.S. dollars a year into Cosa Nostra coffers which was tied to his business activities in sicily wow. berlusconi flatly denies that <laughs> any mafia money helped him to get a start in real estate well we've heard berlusconi's take on this <laughs> um but yes yeah, so um and we mentioned his lawyer <laughs> <laughs> that is the uh man who brilliantly did the documentary uh where he basically sucked off berlusconi uh for 14 months nice uh and then, um, and he would just ask Berlusconi like he pretty much point wrote blank. the book. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then he, uh, when they edited it together, they put like the most incriminating parts in it. And uh, one other thing about um, Berlusconi's uh, political career and the ties there, uh, the suspicion was and still is, uh, his he's always polled extremely well in key parts of the Italian South. So the suspicion was and is that mafia clans trade blocks of votes for political favors with him. Uh, 
you know, in parts of Sicily and uh, Calabria. But anyway, so regardless of where the money came from, it's from this real estate holdings that he's able to really build himself up into a... Um, uh, mogul. A media mogul, yes. And so he sets up in um, 1979, he sets up his, his first TV company. But Italian media law at this time is essentially that there can be no private national TV broadcasters. There's a, a couple different state channels, mm-hmm. which are the national channels. But private individuals are allowed to, to buy local channels. Hmm. So Berlusconi's insight is essentially... In his word, uh, words, the national television was in the pocket of big government. <laughs> Berlusconi, uh, his way around this is essentially he starts buying up local stations and then he has them show the exact same programs but a few seconds apart. (laughs) So, uh, you know, this is his way. Essentially, he de facto creates national uh, private TV network. Hmm. Uh, He buys the TV right. He just like reverse engineered the network. Yes. Uh, he buys the TV rights to the American show Dallas in 1978. He buys Dynasty in 1981. So he kind of like his strategy is he shows, you know, reruns of popular American shows, but he also shows, you know, scantily clad women and trashy TV. And um, he also... Oh, who was shot to jail? <laughs> uh, he also kind of cut out the ad agencies and went directly to um, the businesses to get them to advertise. Apparently, like, state TV was, was pretty stogy about, like, the kind of... Um, uh, advertisements they would show, mm-hmm. whereas he was like inc- much more unscrupulous. You know, he would show advertising for anything, and um, and so his his formula f- for success works to the point that it, by 1984 he's able to buy out the two chief rivals for national television because two other people thought up this idea. He buys them out by 84. So essentially, by 84, there are three private national networks. He controls all of them, and there are three major state networks, (laughs) which he will soon be elected and control. But so his power is briefly threatened in 1984 because, again, there is this law that's very clearly being broken by him. So in 1984, the government briefly shuts down his TV stations because they are clearly violating the law against national uh, private uh, broadcasting. But um, Berlusconi is able to bribe the uh, then, quote, socialist prime minister, a guy named Craxi. <laughs> and Craxi was a regular dinner guest of Berlusconi by the late 1970s. Uh, in uh, October 20, 1984, after the government shuts down uh, Berlusconi's TV station, Craxi calls an emergency meeting and produces... But yeah, no, uh, Tankies, tell us again why uh, <laughs> ideally socialism is about a centralized, powerful <laughs> government and that that's the best road to uh, <laughs> redistributive policies. Uh, so Craxi, he calls this emergency meeting that, uh, quoting from being Berlusconi... Um, these emergency decrees, um, they, they skirt the need for parliamentary, parliamentary scrutiny and thus avoid the obvious inconvenience associated with the democratic process. Basically, the Craxi degree allowed national commercial TV broadcasts to resume uh, and Berlusconi's revenue to keep pouring in. And it's supposed to, like, you know, only last six months. But then if the parliament doesn't do anything, it's just kind of like de facto stays going. So basically, this prime minister Craxi... Um, would eventually be convicted and have to flee the country because of accepting a bribe from Berlusconi. But uh, Berlusconi bribes him. He does an emergency dis- decree to keep Berlusconi's stations on the air. And then uh, Berlusconi is able to keep his uh, cash cow going. Hmm. 
And uh, that kind of continues throughout the 80s. Um, Berlusconi, he buys the company that uh, controls a news magazine called Panorama. And uh, in this case, uh, Berlusconi's lawyer would actually be convicted of bribing the judiciary in order to make this go through. Like some other mogul had, was originally buying this company, and then Berlusconi... <laughs> Uh, his lawyer bribed the judges hearing the case in Rome, mm -hmm. and apparently he bribed them so effectively that not only did they give Berlusconi this company he's trying to buy, but that he gives the judges give him two of the companies what? controlled by this mogul. Oh my god! Just completely nonsensical. And then Berlusconi's actually encouraged by his political allies to give them back. <laughs> but um, but so basically. Uh, by 1989, uh, Berlusconi has really consolidated his media holdings. Again, so like his his lawyer was bribing the Roman uh, judiciary. Uh, again, like his lawyer would be convicted of this at a later date. But the important thing is that, uh, quoting from the book, Berlusconi by 1989 had three of the six major national TV channels. The other three are all government run. He had a newspaper, an important news magazine, and important news magazines, um, and he also controlled 60% of Italy's uh, TV advertising uh, market. And so, in 1989, the government again tries to pass a law, uh, control it, re uh, regulating media ownership. The idea is that. Lots of different Berlusconi opponents are like, he shouldn't have three of the TV stations. He should have to sell two of them or whatever. So it falls to um, this uh, uh, Republican Party member in Italy uh, named Oscar Mami. <laughs> Mami. Oscar Mami. Uh, he's supposed to write this TV regulation law. And again, quoting from being Berlusconi, jaws dropped when the proposals finally emerged. The limit on the number of TV channels that could be controlled by one individual was three. <laughs> the number Berlusconi already had. Uh, the mogul uh, would have... Mamma mia. <laughs> the law did require him to relinquish his national newspaper, which he did by handing it over to his brother. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then uh, prosecuted from being Berlusconi, prosecutors later... That's the spicy meat. <laughs> he didn't hand it over to himself in a suit. <laughs> With an even more guinea mustache. <laughs> it's my brother, Mario. Uh, Thank you. You know what the uh, Italian public said when they heard that? Hmm. <laughs> He had to uh, hold, hand it over to a larger version of himself <laughs> with, with some sort of raccoon tail. <laughs> uh, so prosecutors uh, from the book, prosecutors later discovered that the man who drafted the legislation received a payment of uh, $500,000 U.S. dollars from Berlusconi's Fininvest holding company. He maintained that it was a consulting fee. Prosecutors also <laughs> investigated the claim that there was a much bigger payment of about $8.3 million originating from fin Fininvest um, and given to the uh, political party of the man who drafted the legislation. Um, but uh, basically, this court was tried in Rome, and because um, Berlusconi's lawyer had been bribing the Roman judiciary, uh, no... Um, influential persons in this uh, were ever put in court. Um, but so basically, this is how Berlusconi, you know, uh, fights off uh, challenges to his media empire. But this is important because essentially throughout the 80s, you know, he he's, has a lot of political friends. He's pay, paying bribes, but there are various people putting him in his sights. Mm. And so what happens in Italy is from 1992 to 1994, there's what's called Bribesville. And Bribesville is a, basically it's a scandal that, 
discredits the entire Italian uh, political establishment, like both the nominally socialist and the uh, center-right parties and stuff. They're all caught up taking money, including, you know, Prime Minister, at this point, former Prime Minister Craxi uh, is, you know, convicted of bribes and all these other magistrates. It, it's kind of like what happened in Brazil recently with Operation Car Wash, where it essentially showed that every prominent member of the mainstream political establishment on both sides was taking uh, uh, kickbacks, you know, like any construction project, you'd have to like skim off a little to pay bribes to the politicians. And the magistrates, you know, aggressively prosecuted all of these uh, different political figures from 92 to 94. And Berlusconi has to enter politics at this point, because essentially, all of the politicians who'd been protecting his media empire were completely discredited. And all that so, were left were like Maoists. Yes. So, so basically Berlusconi was very worried about a leftist or, you know, straight up communist government coming to power and seizing his TV stations or making him sell them off or really? whatever have you. Um, so this is what leads Berlusconi to enter the political fray in 1994, this complete discrediting of, um, <clears throat> basically all of the uh, political parties that had protected him up until then. And I'm sure there were no larger interests propping him up so that maybe there would be a charismatic figure in place to stop a left-wing government from uh, having control of Italian politics. Why did you say that, Andy? Well, well, actually... just, Just guessing. If you want to get into some conspiracy stuff, Berlusconi is also a member of the Propaganda 2 Masons, the P2 Masons are kind of a, a, a secret, secret anti-communist society um, that's in Italy. And uh, uh, basically, P2, st- uh, the, from the book being Berlusconi. Oh, I know yeah. who they are. They hit yeah. the national treasure. <laughs> uh, from the book, uh, P2's stated aim was to save the country from the Italian Communist Party by infiltrating trade unions, political parties, and the media. Um Basically, uh, oh, so the FBI. <laughs> uh, Berlusconi joins it in, I believe, 1978 or 1977. Mm-hmm. Um, the book speculates that he probably just joined it. Uh, oh, he joins in 1978. The book speculates that Berlusconi probably just joined this in order to network, you know, get more political connections for his business empire, That's get more I clients for, for his business. But um, funny story about P2 is... Um, they buy some like nominally center right journal when it has uh, Italian political paper when it has financial troubles, and then suddenly it starts being like militantly and violently anti-communist, but also like weird inexplicable news stories start appearing that really? people believe are coded messages to CIA agents and other intelligence. <laughs> <figures>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And another thing, like in um, in 1978, in which a Christian Democrat ex-premier was held hostage by the Red Brigade, uh, the terrorists I mentioned it's earlier. It's so weird mm-hmm. how uh, Berlusconi fell out of power right after he opposed the uh, deposition of Gaddafi. <laughs> Uh, one editorial in the formerly moderate newspaper called for democratic rights to be suspended and suspected leftist sympathizers to be rounded up <laughs> uh, in 1978. So, you know, it's like it's one of those things where uh, Berlusconi paid the uh, 100,000 lira membership fee and joined in 1978. <laughs> he never really left. And we don't know, you know, like there's a lot of conspiracy about if this influenced him at all, the book speculates again that he was just doing this for networking, but he was clearly involved in a secretive anti-communist society <laughs> with links to the CIA and other I mean, it, uh, intelligence agencies. Sure, Eichmann joined a couple groups out of networking. He went in there and just fu- was fueling their fevered dreams <laughs> <laughs> for like a, a fascist takeover. 
Um, but so Ben while working on his business plan. I mean, it seems like the <laughs> difference between him and Eichmann in this case is there wasn't a friend who said, um, "Actually, the Masons aren't very good. I've got this different group you might want to join." <laughs> <laughs> There's this really cool guy named Scott. You'll meet him. <laughs> but so. Berlusconi, he starts up his political party in 1994, like just, I think, two months before the election. And, oh, I forgot to mention, in 1986, I believe he buys AC Milan, the football club. And this actually improves his image with the public a lot because they start winning championships and Berlusconi is the guy who, like, is behind AC Milan and, and they're well, the winning. All the teams they start playing start right. have broken kneecaps. <laughs> <laughs> Easier uh, to win when the opposite team doesn't have kneecaps. But this improves his public profile because In people football. associate with him with, like, the guy who made AC Milan win, you know, and this kind of nonsense. And this is important. For, for a long time before this... Um, this uh, guy at his Sony uh, had a de- team called DC Milan, and he proved that AC Milan was actually quite dangerous by uh, electrocuting elephants to death on the field before each game. <laughs> um, but so, uh, <laughs> did uh, did Edisoni uh, steal his team from an Italian who is forgotten by history? <laughs> uh, so importantly. Uh, the the slogan for AC Milan, the uh, the soccer club, is Forza Milan. So Berlusconi, which means just, go Milan, basically. And Berlusconi just takes that and he starts a political party. Go and, Italy. Yes, he Forza starts, Italy is the name of his party. Forza, it, yeah, Forza Italia. And and this is if you're wondering if what kind of uh, intelligence level of voter base he sought out, he named his political party Go Italy. <laughs> All right, put a put a dollar in the ironic anti-Italian racism <laughs> jar. Uh, so uh, basically, according to the book, being Berlusconi, um, by 1992, one of his top lieutenants had already uh, dispatched. It's not even anti-Italian. I'm just saying he's going for the winking mask. <laughs> like our he, our uh, president. He dispatched um, winking Andy. I think you winking, you put two dollars well. in there. <laughs> basically, they fanned put out one euro in there. <laughs> they fanned out throughout what, the country. Like a dollar fifteen. <laughs> oh, they're going down. Well, we're not we're not to the year yet, so put a couple of the year. We're not there yet. Yeah. So they they by 1992 they'd already fanned out around the country and they started to find parliamentary candidates to represent the Forza Italia line and they found about 600 or so people. Um, nearly all were f- uh, from business and many had direct or indirect uh, links to Fininvest, which is of course Berlusconi's holding company. So hmm. obviously, if these people have financial in- interest in protecting right, his business, right. you know. Uh, and so just uh, one interesting thing from the book, all the candidates were drilled on the importance of tidy appearance, fresh breath, and the need to avoid sweaty palms at all costs. <laughs> Tips right out of Berlusconi's salesman's handbook. Um, and so, you know, and basically they just launched this, uh, again, if, if you're familiar with Trump, you'll recognize it, campaign where they're promising tax cuts uh, without having to cut spending. Deal making. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and uh, Berlusconi, he launches this new political party, which gets, I think, 20-some percent of the vote. Uh, but he, he forms a coalition with two groups, the Northern League, which is kind of like a, um, uh, a political party that's very anti-Rome, that kind of wants to protect the north of Italy. They're pretty right-wing. But the other one is uh, Alanza Nacional, Nazional, um, and that's a, a neo-fascist party, <laughs> which um, the leader of it— Did not see that coming. The leader of it in 1994 stated that uh, Benito Mussolini was, quote, the greatest statesman of the century. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, and yeah, so Berlusconi promises 1 million new jobs, lower taxes without cuts to public service. And then just like one other interesting thing from uh, the book here is uh, subsequent research showed that the number of hours a person spent uh, viewing Berlusconi's TV channels correlated with the likelihood that they would vote for him. Uh, (laughs) The trend was particularly pronounced among women. 75% of female ex-Christian Democrat voters who watch more than one, more than four hours a day of media set Berlusconi's company of their television put their uh, vote to Berlusconi, whereas only 40% of those who watched less than four hours a day voted for him. Hmm. So, you know, he's able to uh, uh, exploit the moment of um, uh, frustration with the establishment because of the corruption and exploit the fact that he's controlling half of the media and right, all of right. the private uh, national media in Italy to uh, shoot himself into power. And so basically, 1994, he gets into power for the first time and... Um, Starts protecting himself, like he he makes he he puts a lot of his lawyers into power. He makes his tax lawyer finance minister, who in turns gives a hundred and thirty million U.S. dollar tax break to Finnevest, his company. Um, he makes his other lawyer, who was doing the bribes to the Roman judiciary, he makes him defense minister. Um, they uh, they passed an infamous decree decree called the that was dubbed the Save a Thief Law, which prevents the judiciary from issuing arrest warrants for most crimes related to political corruption and fraud. Um, and they did it. They tried to sneak it out under cover of the final rounds of the World Cup, <laughs> uh, but Brazil uh, beat Italy in this 1994 final. So uh, public attention refocused on his uh, brazen attempt to get his friends out of jail. And about uh, about 2,764 suspects uh, walked out of prison overnight. Uh, and then he was forced to rescind this. But again, it's, uh, it's kind of like an ongoing thing with Berlusconi's uh, taking power is that he keeps coming in and passing all these laws to protect himself and his associates from criminal liability. And then because of the way Italian um, uh, law is structured... Mm-hmm. Uh, basically the statute of limitations for a crime keeps ticking even after somebody's been charged with it. Oh, really? So if they can just change the law to like add all these extra steps, eventually the statute of limitations will expire. Right, And this right. is how Berlusconi got off on a lot of stuff. Huh. Yeah. But uh, the, 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 the government falls by essentially Christmas Day, um, 1994. The, uh, the Northern League, their other partners kind of pull out um, after... Uh, after the leader describes Berlusconi as a mafioso and uh, the league's ministers quit the cabinet and Berlusconi resigns on December 21, 1994. And that's about the end of his first government. (laughs) But so, um, you know, so there's a lot of allegations going around in in 1994 that kind of force him out of government, which is like he's bribing uh, finance police to, his company is bribing finance police to let them do tax fraud. Mm -hmm. Um, But in 1998, actually, after he leaves government, he is found guilty of having illegally funded a political party. This is Craxy's Socialist Party way back in the 80s. Uh, he gets two years in uh, and four months. He's sentenced, but he has the right to two appeals, and the incarceration is suspended for those appeals. And because the statute of limitations r- keeps running throughout these two appeals, he's actually able to get the statute of limitations to expire in the course of the two, uh, two appeals. Uh, all the way to the Supreme Court, the statute of limitation expires before it gets there. So this is how Berlusconi gets out of jail in this particular case in 1998. And um, it's interesting where essentially throughout the 90s, the the government that replaces him in 1994 is 
kind of corrupt too, but they're not really interested in making an enemy out of him because, again, he still has all this media control. Uh, he's all this financial power. And it's essentially uh, the people get sick of the uh, government and uh, the usual austerity and stuff. And uh, they return him to power in 1998. He's too good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's kind uh, of sustained in a way by just milk toast neoliberalism in between mm-hmm. his stints as in power. Right. And so he uh, he returns to power in 2001 for the first time, and uh, he does a, a contract with Italians, which he steals from Newt Gingrich's contract with oh, America. Yeah. And uh, basically, it's five pledges, tax cuts, reduction in crime, rise in the state pension, having unemployment and a massive boost in the number of public works. Extra Uh, spicy meatballs. He said if he doesn't meet at least four of the five pledges, he would never again run for parliament. (laughs) But uh, according to one one academic, he failed on at least four of the five pledges. and so he comes back in 2001. He does uh, amnesty for tax dodgers right away, which, <laughs> which, <laughs> which allows <Goat. laughs> which allows Mediaset again his TV company He's forgiving something that Jesus did. That's right. That's right. It allows Mediaset to avoid paying 120 million euros it owed the Italian states for uh, the Italian state for overseas slush funds. Um, he started. Uh, he started putting his lawyers into key ministerial posts while they were busy representing him in court. So they would fly out to protect him in court cases. And then they would fly back to Rome and write laws to protect him. <laughs> like, um, uh, just <laughs> one such example was the 2002, uh, Kirami law, which was named after the guy who came up with it. Basically suspects who thought a particular court was biased against them would be allowed to request the trial elsewhere. And as we mentioned, because the statute of limitation doesn't stop, this is just another delay tactic and then they reduce a bunch of random crimes that are political in nature oh but the funniest thing they do is in 2001 they withdraw government protection for magistrates that are investigating him and so of (laughs) course a lot of these magistrates are like anti-mafia famously in 1992 one of them is exploded blown up by a car bomb Uh, so you know these these people are like under threat of their lives (laughs) trying to investigate the mafia and he essentially says oh yeah his interior minister says they're not going to do state protection for all these people who just happen to be investigating him but you know and it kind of just goes on like that uh <laughs> so i guess uh we we could talk about his gaffes uh or uh, uh, i think we should talk about his successes yes um, he said he has uh addressed u.s congress <laughs> and um they let him know that he set the record for longest standing ovation what really he um Let's see. He he has a bunch of awards. He's got a whole room dedicated to them. But it, at uh, at least at the time of the um, of the documentary, several of them were missing. There used to be a lot more awards than uh, he could find, and there must be a thief in his place. Mm-hmm. He uh, also has a collection of Roman statues that Gaddafi gave him personally <laughs> from Libya. <laughs> The original place Bunga Bunga was done. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, well, and so, and, and then the other thing is he kept, keeps passing these immunity laws. Like in 2003, he passed this one that gave immunity from prosecution to the holders of the prime minister, the presidency, the speakers of the Senate, and the chambers of deputy, and the presidents of the constitutional court. This, of course, coincides with his lawyer being charged, and he puts <laughs> his lawyer into one of these places to get them immunity. <laughs> and then this law is struck down by the Supreme Court, but because the statute of limitations drags on, this allows his lawyer to get off, and then he does this again when he returns to power so he keeps passing these immunity laws essentially oh um mm. okay i've got i've got another story uh from i should have brought this up when we were talking about his childhood but mm-hmm. um apparently he uh wasn't very popular in school mm-hmm. was when you all go oh mm-hmm. uh and he was getting picked on a lot by his friends oh mm-hmm. yeah and so he learned a valuable lesson he was um it was it was raining outside and you know they were under uh a uh, little shelter and this one boy who had not been picking on him started picking on him. Mm. Um, he was an older boy. And so Berlusconi, uh, then you get to choose. Do you want to be picked on or do you want bunga bunga? <laughs> <laughs> Berlusconi, uh, then <laughs> punched him in the face and like held his what? face under the water so that he would get humiliated in front of like all the girls and other students and he was like, and he never bullied me oh again. My God. <laughs> and so that was how he learned the valuable childhood uh, lesson that bullies are best confronted with, like violence, domination, and humiliation. Yeah. Uh, the, so, and he was smiling the whole time he told that story. <laughs> so there's been like a bunch of gaffes of Berlusconi. You know, again the the Trump comparison. He like once a um a ta- in 2003 when he was addressing the european parliament a german minister uh asked him about like the obvious conflict of interest with his media holdings <laughs> and you know being prime minister right. and then he mentioned that he knew someone berlusconi mentions he knew someone who was making a film about nazi concentration camps and declared i will recommend you for the role of camp guard oh my god <laughs> uh he's called angela Mer- on a wire wait t- is that a gaff yes <laughs> On a wiretap, I'm, I'm, no, I'm saying like that sounds like a good own. <laughs> on a wiretap, uh, Berlusconi called uh, Angela Merkel quote an unfuckable lard ass, which he denies in the documentary. Yeah, Berlusconi <laughs> denies that. Berlusconi flatly denies. <laughs> But uh, uh, my favorite one is at a press conference in April 2008, he's at a press conference with Putin, who he has a close relationship with. A Russian journalist uh, confronted Putin with rumors of an affair. Not one word of truth, said Putin. (laughs) Berlusconi, who stood next to the ex-KGB despot, grinning like an idiot, made the shape of a pistol with his hands and (laughs) pretended to take aim and fire at the female reporter. (laughs) She is said to have left the room in tears, uh, perhaps not surprised. Surprisingly, because Putin kills journalists. <laughs> but uh, that's from the book Being Berlusconi. But yeah, the guy has a good sense of humor. Um, but so, you know, and again, uh, there's, a, there's a subsidy in this uh, 2001 to 2006 government to media set. Basically, they give them a massive taxpayer subsidy in order to convert to digital television. Uh, we, we don't have time to go through all of the, uh, the, the corruption that occurs here. But he, uh, he has a collection of 300 paintings of him that people have sent him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that includes one painting of Mussolini. That in the documentary, uh, the camera finds its way to it. And then he like walks up in front of the camera and goes, uh, don't film this one, guys, because it's dangerous. What? Yeah. Anyways, that's uh, you, you might recognize that from the image for this podcast. So uh, the the other thing is um, 
uh, besides this uh, subsidy, he loses power in 2006, partly out of anger of, you know, um, not his incompetent management, partly out of he participates in the Iraq war enthusiastically, which the Italian public hates. Um, but one of the last things he does is he does a law that uh, means convicts age 70 or over never go to prison. And then this is right around when the time his 70-year-old lawyer gets convicted. <laughs> so, he's, so his lawyer spends three days in jail uh, because of this law after his conviction. Um, and then, of course, Berlusconi gets thrown out of power. Um, but the uh, the guy who comes after him, Prodi, we've got uh, a P-R-O-D-I, yeah. is, you know, kind of a technocrat. Again, they're like trying to manage this uh, euro standard, which is like you have to yeah. keep your budget deficit to it's 3%. It's the Maastricht Treaty. Yeah. yeah. You, you have to keep your budget deficit to like 3% of GDP. And, of course, yeah, he after, does this. After all that shit, what takes out uh, Berlusconi. Yeah is uh, standing up to uh, the austerity police. Um, but so but no, I mean, I mean, it kind of does give the, him the opportunity to return to power because he's, he's oh, okay. So he's this was, he the, eventually oh, oh, this defends is, this it was, this right is before he's, that. He's okay. taken down in two thousand six, okay. and then this guy who comes after him actually like starts enforcing tax collection more strictly <laughs> yeah, and, to try to comply with master treaty, right? And doing all this austerity and stuff, and so. Um, uh, what happens is um, he's a Berlusconi's able to force a vote of no confidence by bribing someone in the Senate about three million euro to change sides. <laughs> Uh, and this is in 2008. And so the, the, there's a vote of no confidence and there's another election. And basically uh, people started uh, talking about how uh, this this guy Prodi was uh, enforcing taxation much more strictly than Berlusconi had, and so uh, as soon as Berlusconi was reelected in 2008, he's out of power 2006 to 2008. Tax revenues fall sharply again, um, and this is just like an interesting thing here. Uh, from the book Being Berlusconi, they're quoting an antique dealer who says, quote, Here from the day Berlusconi won the ad- election, people stopped issuing receipts. Artisans, plumbers, and medical consultants, shopkeepers, all of them, restauranteurs and hotel owners start issuing fake ones. <laughs> so basically, like, he's able to return to power because a lot of people know that he's not going to enforce tax collection right, right, right. the way his predecessor was. So it's just kind of an interesting thing where austerity allows him to come back to power despite many people knowing that he was corrupt. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about how he consolidates his power of his media empire and how much of an advantage that is for him in his elections. Mm -hmm. But kind of like the eventually that his luck with that kind of runs out and he he has to get into power simply to maintain that empire. Mm -hmm. And but there's a like there's a secondary thing where like the austerity politics and neoliberal parties like the the so-called socialist party or the Christian Democrats are like their milquetoastness basically allows him to not have a competent uh, competitor mm-hmm. in those elections. And, and uh, like the Maastricht tri- criteria in particular, which he's like eventually comes back to be a huge champion for Maastricht criteria. Right. And the, the Euro staying in the Euro, like defying his Northern, uh, what are they called? The Northern coalition. Mm-hmm. He, he eventually opposes them. The coalition and, and like famously think they're better than other <laughs> he, he famously defends staying in the euro and mm-hmm. the master criteria really yeah unpopular at the time yeah well so it's interesting where essentially he comes back in 2008 and then this is where all the wheels come off where like i, I think there's speculation i think his mother dies in 2008 and she was like kind of because he was always having affairs and these kinds of things but he was more keeping it out of public view 
Um, like I think going at least going back to 2006, there were rumors that he was having these sex parties at you know his different villas. Um, and so, but interestingly enough, he comes back 2008. Within two months, they do another immunity law, which of course gets struck down, but allows us to take <laughs> his first wife's silhouette seemed to say to him. Uh, <laughs> They, they do this immunity law, which gets struck down, but again, drags out the statute of limitations. But importantly, this, this final term, he starts appointing women that he wants to have sex with to various government jobs. Um, he, he appoints um, beautiful women with no qualifications to education minister, environmental minister, tourism minister, and equal opportunity minister. Um, two of them are heard on a wiretap talking about the best ways to give him oral sex. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it's, it's really just kind of all falls apart here. Okay. Sean, I'm sick of white men, uh, talking down gender representation and Uh government. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so you might be familiar if you're listening to this with what's called Rubygate. And so in uh, 2010, a 17-year-old exotic nightclub dancer is arrested for theft. But then the prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, calls the officials at the police station where she's being held and says that she is, in fact, the uh, granddaughter of the uh, Egyptian president Mubarak. (laughs) Uh, And uh, she should be released into custody of a woman who Berlusconi knows who's basically alleged to be a madam who procures uh, prostitutes for Berlusconi. And so this woman is, again, 17 years old. Um, and then seven months after this, in May 2011, uh, Berlusconi is placed on trial and charged with paying for sex with a minor. And this is where the entire bunga bunga parties and such kind of spills into the uh, the public light. And uh, there's, there's just like tons of witnesses and evidence as to what went on at these bunga bunga parties it's all pretty weird like one of uh, one girl describes them as nude girls would dance around a giant phallus like a, a statue of a giant penis while they chanted uh, Ber- Berlusconi's uh, theme tune which roughly translates to thank goodness for Silvio <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, according to uh, the testimony of uh, the seventeen-year-old mm-hmm. uh, in Italian court, uh, the night that she was at the bunga bunga party, there was a stripper dressed as Obama, <laughs> female stripper. Um, I, I think she was black, so it wasn't problematic. Mm-hmm. Dressed as Obama. <laughs> Just imagine Le- that as a world leader being like, "I need to see." The American president as someone I want to have sex with. Let me be clear. You can choose death or you can choose bunga bunga. <laughs> uh, so, if you like your bunga bunga, <laughs> you can keep it. So um, the, according to witnesses, uh, girls who would uh, basically they would um, do these dances where they would fondle each other and fondle the prime minister. There would sometimes be up to 20 girls, just him there. Uh, they, the guests would be paid around 2,000 to 3,000 euros, except for the ones that he selected to sleep with and stay overnight would be paid around 5,000 euros. Um, and basically, uh, he's indicted in this uh, for May 2011, but then two of his associates are picked up uh, just three months later uh, talking about how he's still doing these parties. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he was clearly, like, having a sickness or something. 
And uh, the, the, the girl, the underage girl, uh, Ruby, she was um, from a, a Moroccan household uh, that came to Italy. She was relatively poor. She had to flee because of strict Islamic parents. She ended up, you know, prostituting and stripping and such. But she actually managed to, according to one attorney involved, she received a sum of over 6 million euros from oh. companies connected to Berlusconi because, of course, she was testifying in this trial. Right, right. And partly why they weren't actually able to get him on this was her testimony was unreliable. She said that they never had sex despite other evidence that they did um her boyfriend uh or one of her boyfriends at the time said that she'd stayed over and so you know i mean clearly they (laughs) did um what you're saying just if a woman stays over at a man's place they had sex (laughs) wow Uh, sean you're sexist yeah um it's (laughs) Uh, yes. Why wouldn't a 72-year-old be seeing a, a 17-year-old prostitute for anything but uh, innocent reasons? Maybe to keep for her life off advice. the streets. <laughs> Clearly, she Paid needed to do a place homework. to stay. Yeah. Paid to do her homework. <laughs> Um, but so according to, um, so, and like, there's just so many different women, uh, not all of whom were prostitutes, but, uh, some of them, you know, were job seekers. Some of them were just, uh, interested. And, and so according to w- the memoir of one, um, uh, uh, escort he was seeing, uh, this is a quote from it. Having been an escort, I thought I'd seen a fair few things, but I'd never seen 20 women for one man. Normally in an orgy, you have roughly the same number of men and women. Otherwise people get upset. But, <laughs> but here the other men, but here the other men had no say. There this was is basic ju- orgy math, guys. <laughs> There was just one man with the right to copulate, and that was the prime minister. <laughs> uh, if this isn't the patriarchy, then I don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, and again, I mean, this is just horrifying. Uh, his second wife around this time leaves him. He he was married the first time. This is the woman who, like, take me, take me, or whatever. Uh, he leaves her in 19... 19- Wait, take me. Take me, his first wife's silhouette seemed to say to him. Uh, he, he leaves in uh, or he leaves her in 1980 for like a showgirl. This is his second wife. He's still constantly cheating on her, but she finally leaves him uh, right around the time this scandal comes out or just before. She leaves him with a public letter which says, quote, I can no longer stay with a man who hangs around with minors. <laughs> Uh, and so this is also prompted because Berlusconi in April 2009, he turns up at the 18th birthday party of a uh, girl who uh, was, wanted to go on to a career in politics and television. Well, there you go. Not illegal. <laughs> yes. Uh, Berlusconi handed her a present. He's learned like R. Kelly, apparently. A $7,000 uh, choker necklace. Um and uh, she revealed in an interview two days later that Berlusconi had brought her jewelry at previous meetings. This is all, of course, before she turned 18. Um, oh, yeah, and, and sorry, I messed it up. It was her boyfriend who said that uh, she had, when she was 17 years old, spent more than a week uh, over 2008, 2009 um, with between 30 and 40 young girls at the Mogul's uh, Sardinian Pleasure Palace. And uh, I mean, you yeah. can't prove that they had sex. <laughs> That's just the name of the place, Sean. Okay, don't read into it. <laughs> and uh, uh, one more. Uh, yeah, just it's it's just it's translated from Italian. It translates weird. <laughs> well, one more thing from his wife. On hearing the news uh, from the book being Berlusconi, on hearing the news of her husband's attendance at the birthday bash, uh, her response was terse. This news surprises me. Surprised me because he'd never come to an 18th birthday party of any of his own children, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> despite being what? invited. 
Um, yeah, and so look, it just kind of goes on like this. We unfortunately, we, we can't get to all of the pedophilia and corruption Sylvia Berlusconi <laughs> has been involved in. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we, I think we get a reveal here that we wanted to do an episode of, on Jeffrey Epstein next week. We will be doing that. So we wanted to ease you into it by gradually lowering the age of consent that the billionaires were talking <laughs> right, about respect. Right. Um, and so I, I guess just to kind of like round it out here, uh, a couple more allegations and then we'll, we'll sum up. Um, the, the wiki WikiLeaks showed that the U S embassy was concerned that, uh, Berlusconi's closeness to Vladimir Putin, the Russian uh, 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 prime minister, was based on... Um, oh, who, who was that? <laughs> yes. Uh, the, according to Wiki, this Wiki... What does he do? The WikiLeaks cable. Uh, Berlusconi and his cronies are profiting personally and handsomely from many of the energy deals from between Italy and Russia. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, like... It's, and that's the kind of stuff where if someone were to leak it, uh, that person should be locked up and tortured for years because that is very sensitive to American national security. Yes. Uh, uh, that's, that was probably by Chelsea Manning. That's what they did to her. <laughs> well, and, and so, you know, just like two other hits here. In 2009, there's an earthquake in Laquela uh, in Italy, and the cleanup is still ongoing. <laughs> Basically, it's alleged that a lot of the cleanup contracts under Berlusconi were given to organized crime figures. What? And this, these people were given like temporary housing, which many of them are thousands of them are still in. And then like the, the clean off site was like blocked off. And then apparently a few years after someone like went and checked it out and it was exactly the same. Wow. As it had been. <laughs> Um, but eventually in 2011, this bunga bunga comes out and then there's a, a scheme with like, uh, various European powers and the, the then president of Italy and they push him out in 2011. He becomes a Senator for a bit, but 2013, they finally get him on tax evasion. And then he does a year of community service once a week. He never sees a day, day in jail and he's banned from office. But he, of course, three days ago has announced that he will be running for the European parliament. Woo. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the story of Berlusconi, and it's it's interesting where a where the real power is, <laughs> the European Union Parliament. Yes. Well, it's it's so the the article I read speculated that essentially he's doing this to like put his name out there, which will increase vote share for his party and give him right. more bargaining power in the coalition. Because yeah. of course, in Italy, the government that has come to power, and this is like. If you're going to say Berlusconi is like Trump, the really scary thing is essentially what has come to Italy after Berlusconi, because Berlusconi was able to keep his power because his opposition was divided, kind of corrupt, but not as corrupt, and also committed to austerity and punishing Italian people. Um, so he was able to keep his power, and he used his power to protect himself, keep himself out of jail, uh, enrich himself greatly. And, um, and then what happens is, of course, there's no benefit for the average italian person so they turn to a semi-fascist government and and if i can just quote here uh the uh current i believe interior and what's the word for fascist in italian <laughs> <laughs> the uh the deputy this is from the independent the deputy the current deputy prime minister of italy said in an interview last year quote we need a mass cleansing street by street plaza by plaza neighborhood by neighborhood on migrants we need to be tough because there are entire parts of our cities entire parts of italy that are out of control and the government has uh since it came to power the current government in italy has an announced quote a census of the country's gypsy community so just like one of those things that is like deeply disturbing in terms of if you i'm sure some of the <laughs> some of that was lost in translation 
That's, it sounds much worse than it is, but... Boomer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is just something where it's like, if you want to keep the Trump analogy going, the scary thing is I don't. I don't what think happens. we have to worry about that because Mueller's about to take <laughs> Trump down, and then we're going to have President Mike Pence, yeah. who is known for uh, pursuing moderate, rational policies. Mm-hmm. But it is just like uh, one last little hit of corruption. Uh, research published in 2014 found that um, there was a significant uh, bias towards advertising with Berlusconi's TV stations during the time he was in power. No, really? <laughs> the authors said companies tried to court political advantage by directing advertising to the uh, moguls' TV channels. So it's something where it's like, again, he said, I'm a billionaire, I don't need money, but of course he's greatly enriched himself with the prime ministership. And it's not clear that he's done anything except enrich himself and uh, have sex with children. (laughs) So, good billionaire. So he's a real Michael Bloomberg. (laughs) We're going to have to beep that name. But, um, yeah, look, uh, as... Couldn't get to everything, but I guess any closing closing thoughts on Mr. Bunga Bunga? Um, it's a pretty good test of our new um, purpose of is there are billionaires useless? Yeah, and so we're 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 gonna slowly shift from is there such thing as a good billionaire to uh, is there such thing as a useful billionaire? And you know what? I think this guy's pretty useful. Now look. Yeah. Berlusconi sounds pretty bad listening to this episode, but if you check us out next week and listen to our Jeffrey Epstein episode. (laughs) We've just been gradually ratcheting up the debauchery every single episode, starting with Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's gotten to such an extreme that the only next logical step (laughs) is to go to Epstein. Anyways, I want to. I, I do want to say a heartfelt congratulations to uh, our co-host Yogi. Oh yeah, for um, ending his life of sin and uh, getting engaged. Monogamy is my gummy now. Yeah. So now we got a uh, one engaged grub staker, one married grub staker, and uh, Stephen and I are living together. Two filthy uh, pigs <laughs> under the ire of the Lord. All right, can we wrap this up? I can't wait to come to Yogi's last bunga bunga party. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I'm Yogi Pollywall. Steve Jeffers. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Check us out next week. Silvio Berlusconi's accountant brought 20 million euros in cash to the former premier's luxury villa to pay girls who attended his infamous bunga bunga parties, a court heard last week. His accountant said, he asked me to bring the money in cash and I would put it in the safe at the villa. In 2009, I brought around 7,665,000 euros, while in 2010, when it was needed most, when everybody else was inflicting austerity upon us. Well, Silvio Berlusconi got very, very generous. He paid out more than 12 million euros. That's almost 33,000 euros per day for every single day of the year for these girls.